all the way through the book of Daniel, we've been brought back again and again to two themes. The first is the message that however things may look, God is in control. We saw that, for example, in chapter 3, as Daniel's three friends were saved in the fiery furnace. We saw it in chapter 6, when Daniel himself was saved in the lion's den. But the other chapters have also told us that however things may look, God is in control. From Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in chapters 2 and 4, to the writing on the wall in chapter 5, and on to the visions in the second half of the book, the message has been that however powerful human leaders may look, however much they seem to be in control, there is a higher throne, a higher authority. History is under God's control. The second theme of this book is the call and the challenge of being a faithful witness in a society that's hostile to God. This came up in chapter 1 as Daniel was taken to Babylon as a teenager. And in those early days, we're told he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He didn't go along with Nebuchadnezzar's subtle attempts to wean him away from his heritage and his God. And that same loyalty to God was the reason he ended up in the lion's den in chapter 6. In chapter 3, we saw Daniel's three friends follow Daniel's lead. They wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They stayed faithful to God. Remember what they said to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Faithful witnesses in a society that's hostile to God. And if we think about those two themes, we realize they're very closely connected. The second is only possible when we accept the first. It's only possible to stay faithful in the face of hostility if we have a deep conviction that God really is in control, however things might look. And so alongside the call to faithfulness, the book of Daniel is packed with assurances that the God we're being faithful to is the sovereign God, the God who holds history in his hands. And as we come tonight to the end of the book, we find our two themes coming together one final time. Last time we looked at chapter 10, the introduction to Daniel's final vision. You may remember Daniel had been fasting and praying for three weeks. At the end of that time, he received a vision from the Lord. In fact, a vision of the Lord. Apparently, the first vision in chapter 10 was the same figure who appears to the Apostle John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And then in chapter 10, an angel appeared to Daniel. The angel explained that he had been sent to give Daniel a vision concerning a time yet to come. But the angel went on to say that he had been delayed because of a spiritual conflict, a battle in the heavens. Alongside the archangel Michael, 
this angel had been fighting the prince of the Persian kingdom. That seems to be a way of talking about the commander of Satan's forces who was assigned to the kingdom of Persia. But finally, after three weeks' delay, the angel has arrived with Daniel. And tonight, we pick up at chapter 10, verse 20. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So Daniel is going to be privileged to find out the contents of the book of truth, or at least some of the contents. Apparently, this book contains the course of future history. And that tells us something very significant. If future history is already written in God's book, then it's not open-ended. Human rulers and nations do not hold the keys to the future. God does. From God's perspective, there is no uncertainty about the future. It's already written in his book. Or as someone has put it, God holds the script in his hands. In fact, not only does he hold the script, he has written the script. That will become clear in the vision that follows. And for God's people, this is cause for great confidence and great celebration. The future is not something to fear. The future is God's. Human rulers and regimes are not writing their own script. They're following God's script. And to reassure us that this is true, the angel gives Daniel a glimpse into the future that's contained in the book of truth. Look to chapter 11, verse 2. The angel goes on. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with greater power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Chapter 10, verse 1, told us Daniel received this vision in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So probably about 536 or 535 BC. These verses that we've just read are a condensed view of what's going to happen during the next 200 years. After a few more Persian leaders, Alexander the Great from Greece will rise to power. He will bring the Persian Empire to an end. He's the mighty king of verse 3. But when Alexander dies, the angel says, the land he conquered will be parceled out among his four generals. That's where verse 4 takes us to. 200 odd years summarized in a few sentences. And from that point on, chapter 11 focuses on two of Alexander's successors. Two of his generals and the dynasties that came from those two generals. 
In the vision, they're described as the king of the south and the king of the north. The dynasty in the south became known as the Ptolemies, and the dynasty in the north became known as the Seleucids. Now, the last thing I want is for us to get overwhelmed at this point with details. So to try to simplify this for us, here's a map showing the empire of Alexander parceled out among Alexander's four generals after he died. And here are the territories roughly of the king of the north and then the king of the south. The south roughly corresponds to Egypt. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying things, here's a summary of what happens in verses 5 to 20. Those two coins represent the kings of the north and the south. This is a summary of what happens. In case you missed that, here it is again. If we throw in a couple of diplomatic marriages, that's the basic picture. The north and south attack each other backwards and forwards, up and down the army's march. And for a while, one of them gains the upper hand, but then the other strikes back. So what do we do with this? Well, if this was a history lecture tonight, we could turn to the historians who record all the events pointed to in this vision. For example, the ancient historians Josephus, Polybius, and Livy. Or we could pull out a copy of the more recent Cambridge Ancient History. And we could list all the dates and all the historical figures who fulfilled this vision. There would be value in that because history lines up with what's foretold here. We could take each of verses 5 to 20 and link it to historical dates and events. But this isn't a history lecture. I'm sure some of you are very glad about that. You may have no interest in the history of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And that's okay. Because our main interest tonight is not so much how this vision was fulfilled. Our main interest is the fact that it was fulfilled. So don't worry tonight about the names and the dates. Just grasp the fact that this vision was fulfilled in history. This angelic messenger came to Daniel and gave him a glimpse into the book of truth. He showed Daniel a part of God's script for the future. And although at the time it made little or no sense to Daniel, we can look back at it today and find confidence to face our future. Daniel saw some pages from God's book of truth, pages describing history that was future to Daniel. And what Daniel saw in God's script became a reality. So then you and I can be confident that whatever happens in our future is also according to God's script. None of it will take God by surprise. It's already written in his book of truth. And so we can sum up this first section of our passage like this. North and south. Human power under God's authority. You'll notice from the reference up on the screen that this section runs to chapter 11, verse 35. So we're not yet finished with this north-south toing and froing. 
In chapter 11, verse 21, we're reintroduced to someone who we've met before. Look down to chapter 11, verse 21. He will be succeeded, and the he mentioned here at the start is a northern king called Seleucus IV. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. The contemptible person who succeeds Seleucus IV as ruler of the north is a man called Antiochus IV. Here he is. We met him back in chapter 8. And from verse 21 down to verse 35, the text foretells the rise and rise of Antiochus. Verse 21 told us he did not have the honor of royalty. In other words, he wasn't officially in line for the throne of the north, but he ended up on the throne. And at this point, it's worth asking, why focus on Antiochus IV? Because the text here certainly singles him out for attention. Verses 2 to 20 cover about 17 different kings and a couple of queens. Verses 21 to 35 are all about one king. Antiochus IV. So why single him out? He's not exactly a major figure in world history. Not like Alexander the Great, who got a verse and a half. Not like Cleopatra, who got half a verse. She was involved in one of those diplomatic marriages I mentioned. Why only give those big names a passing mention and yet focus in on Antiochus? Simply because in the book of truth, in God's script, the major events and the major characters are not always major in the eyes of this world. In God's script, the mainstream of history is God's work to save a people from sin and death and lead them into eternal joy in his presence. As far as God is concerned, that's the headline issue of all of history. And so people and events directly related to that get top billing. Even if they're only minor footnotes in the history books of this world. After all, in God's script, the most important man ever born was a carpenter from the village of Nazareth. And the most important event in world history was that man's crucifixion on a piece of wasteland outside Jerusalem. God's script puts those things center stage. Not Alexander or Cleopatra and what they did. And so when the vision of Daniel 11 singles out Antiochus IV for close attention, 
We can be sure he's a significant figure in God's script. And sure enough, Antiochus IV didn't make a big splash in world history. You probably didn't hear about him in your school history classes. But he had a big impact on God's people. He created turmoil in Jerusalem during his lifetime. We've already read verse 22, which says, An overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. The prince of the covenant is probably a reference to the high priest in Jerusalem. At that time, that was a man called Onias III. We know from history that Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, murdered Onias the high priest, then he installed his own priest in the temple. He butchered many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and climactically, he outlawed the two daily sacrifices at the temple. And then, he built an altar to Zeus on top of the altar in the Lord's temple, and he sacrificed pigs on it. That pagan altar set up in the temple is referred to later in this chapter as the abomination that causes desolation. It's no wonder the pages of God's script have a big section for Antiochus IV. And that section continues from the verses we read down to verse 35. Daniel in the 6th century BC has been shown an era hundreds of years in the future. Future for Daniel. And as we look back from our place in history, we can see human power under God's authority. How do we know it's under God's authority? How do we know God is not just holding the script, but that he has written the script? Well, if we had read through that whole section, we would have noticed a comment made about certain kings of the north and south. The comment is, he will do as he pleases. And there's no doubt that human rulers can do great good or great harm. They can produce peace or chaos. But there is another recurring comment in the text. After telling us what those various kings will do, we're told, but only for a time. And scattered through the vision, we read that such and such will happen at the appointed time. That's God's appointed time. The human power that we see in history is human power under God's authority. He has appointed the times when rulers rise and fall. He has determined what those rulers can and cannot do. We've noticed one reason then why Antiochus gets a lot of space in this vision. His actions had direct bearing on God's people. But there is another reason Antiochus gets a lot of space. Antiochus and his reign are a paradigm or a blueprint for other powerful leaders. In other words, his oppression of God's people and his attack on their worship becomes a pattern. It's a pattern that's followed by others in history. Back in chapter 7, we saw a procession of beasts from the sea. 
representing new rulers and regimes in history. Rulers and regimes that set themselves up against God and against his people. And from the book of Daniel onwards, Antiochus IV became the model followed by those later regimes. It's not that they followed his pattern intentionally. They didn't. But they ended up acting very like him. His evil reign was echoed again and again through history. So much so that Jesus himself, speaking in Mark 13, that's long after Antiochus was dead. In Mark 13, Jesus warned his disciples to look out for the abomination that causes desolation. Remember, that was the name given to the pagan altar that Antiochus set up in the temple. But long after that was torn down, Jesus warns his disciples to look out for it. What's going on? What's happening is that Antiochus has set a pattern. So long after he's gone, Jesus can say, it's all going to happen again. Worship of God is going to be attacked again. Probably not in precisely the same way but in similar ways. Throughout history, there will be a procession of anti-God figures like Antiochus, or as the New Testament calls them, anti-Christs. In fact, in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, the final anti-Christ figure has a strong resemblance to Antiochus. He set a pattern that has reoccurred again and again in history. And scripture tells us it will happen for a final, climactic time. A final figure or regime will rise against God's people. The ultimate Antichrist. And his rise will lead to the end of history. We've said that the New Testament sees Antiochus as setting a pattern. But already here in Daniel, we're being shown that he's going to set a pattern. If you look down to verse 36, you'll see what at first appears to be a continuation of Antiochus' story. The text says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. It might sound like more about Antiochus. But the verses that follow do not match with the events of Antiochus' life. Up to this point, everything has, but not anymore. So what's going on? Well, commentators in Daniel 11 recognize that a change happens in verse 36. The language changes. As one writer puts it, the descriptions become larger than life. For example, in verse 36, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. In verse 37, he will exalt himself above all gods. This seems to be taking us beyond even the aspirations of Antiochus. And if we add to that the fact that the details from here on don't match the historical details of Antiochus' life, 
then we come to the conclusion most commentators come to. What began in chapter 11 as a prophecy about Antiochus merges and enlarges into a description of the final Antichrist, the one who will come at the end of history. And to help us try to understand this, I'll ask you to help me out by telling me what this is, if you can see it from where you're sitting. Preferably someone who I haven't asked if they had one of these so I could borrow it tonight. Anyone have an idea? Telescope, yes, very good. Did I ask you if you had one of these? Yes, it's a telescope that extends. I'll resist the temptation to look at you through it. And this telescope is a helpful illustration of how biblical prophecy works. When it's collapsed, it looks like just one tube. But it extends to show us that it's actually made up of several tubes, all contained within the first. And that's helpful for us, if I said it carefully there, Because when we first come to biblical prophecy, when we come to any prophecy, it seems to be talking about one event. But often history shows that it has multiple fulfillments. Just like the telescope appears to be one tube, but is revealed to be several tubes joined together. So, for example, in the Old Testament, God made great promises to King David. Promises about David's son. Old Testament history shows us those promises did find a certain amount of fulfillment in David's son Solomon. But the New Testament shows us the fulfillment was not exhausted with Solomon. Just like this telescope, the fulfillment extended much further than Solomon, all the way to Jesus, described in the New Testament as David's greater son. And that extended fulfillment is not limited to prophecies about Jesus. It happens in other areas too. It happens here in the prophecy about future anti-God figures. The prophecy about Antiochus is also preparing us for later anti-God figures. And for the final anti-God figure. And so we could sum up verses 36 down to 45 like this. In these pages from the book of truth, God's telescope extends to show us the final beast. Then in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, we find the punchline of God's script, resurrection. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, 
close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. So now the end of the age is being described. The end of history. Verse 1 of chapter 12 mentions another book. Not the book of truth this time, but the book of life. The record of all those who belong to God's people. All those who have found life in Jesus Christ. This book is mentioned again in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 2 says those whose names are in the book will rise to enter eternal life, everlasting life, in the new heaven and earth. Those not recorded in the book will also rise, but to enter shame and everlasting contempt in hell. And on that day, verse 3 says those who are wise, that's those who have allied themselves with God, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. In other words, they will share in God's glory forever. Verse 4 suggests that many will try to figure out God's timetable. That seems to be the sense of many will go here and there to increase knowledge. But after this glimpse into the book of truth, the book is going to be sealed up until the end. No one can figure out God's timetable. The script is in his hands alone. And yet, this glimpse of the book has been recorded here for us. We don't have access to all the details. We don't know the dates and the times. But we know that God does. He has the book. We know from chapter 11 that the contents of his book have been and therefore will be fulfilled. And we know the punchline of God's script. Resurrection. However much distress we have to face in this life, there is a resurrection to come. And the New Testament underlines this for us. Remember our reading earlier from 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. However things may look, God is in control. The script is in God's hands. And the rescue of his people is the punchline of that script. The book of Daniel ends with a final word. Trust God, live for his glory. In verses 5 to 13. Daniel says in verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. 
I heard, but I did not understand, so I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. The glimpse into the book of truth is over, but the vision is not yet over. Daniel sees two angels and also a man clothed in linen, the same man he saw back in chapter 10, almost certainly the Lord who appears again in Revelation chapter 1. And even the angels are still curious. One of them asks the man clothed in linen, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And in response, the Lord lifts both hands towards heaven. When someone swore an oath, they lifted one hand to heaven. So this is doubly emphatic. It amounts to saying, trust me, really trust me. And then we get this reference in verse 7 to a time, times, and half a time. It also occurred in chapter 7. It seems to be a way of saying that wickedness and evil will seem to be gaining momentum, growing stronger, a time, times, but then it will be cut off, half a time. And the second half of verse 7 seems to say the end will come at the most unlikely time, just when evil seems to have won. God's people seem defeated, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. Well, Daniel still isn't satisfied. He wants more information in verse 8. I heard this, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? But Daniel is stopped in his tracks. He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. The sense here is get on with life, Daniel. You don't know God's timetable, but you know your responsibility. You're to live as a faithful witness. Verse 10 adds that you may go through much painful and difficult refining, but however bad it gets, you're to trust God and live for his glory. The wicked will get on with their wickedness. You get on with living wisely and faithfully. Verse 11 again mentions this pattern of persecution set up by Antiochus. The abomination that causes desolation. The attack on true worship of God. That's going to come, says the Lord to Daniel. Then he mentions two numbers of days. 1,290 and 1,335. 
Both those numbers are longer than the time of disruption Antiochus caused in the worship of God's people. Longer than the time his altar to Zeus was set up in the temple. So it seems the Lord is referring to the final attack on worship of God. How do these numbers relate to each other? I think a commentator called Tremper Longman gives us the wisest answer. How do the numbers relate to one another? God alone knows. And that seems to be the point. God knows there is an end that he has determined. Precisely. But we cannot figure it out. Because we're not supposed to. Leave it to God, the angel says to Daniel. And through him, the angel speaks to us. Then the Lord repeats his final word to Daniel and to us in verse 13. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Every man or woman who belongs to Christ has an allotted inheritance. In the New Testament, Peter calls it an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for us. So what kind of people should we be as we go our way till the end? We're called to be faithful witnesses. No matter how difficult things might become. Because however things may look, God is in control. History is in his hands. So we're called to trust him and live for his glory. That's God's final word in the book of Daniel. And it will remain God's final word until Jesus comes back. Trust God, live for his glory. We're going to close our service and our study of the book of Daniel by looking ahead to the return of the king. There is a higher throne. 